Welcome back to another episode of Liminal Frames. I am your host, Nathan, joined by my good friend, co-host, Darren Academian. Darren, we're recording on a Friday, which is uh, kind of rare for us. We usually get these done earlier in the week. So when folks are listening uh, to this episode, when we launch it uh, on Saturday evening, this is going to be pretty fresh. And in fact, the freshness of this episode, although all episodes are fresh, by the way, but the freshness of this one is extra fresh because we are going to cover a wide range of uh, topics that are hitting the news right now. There's been a lot of things going on in the last couple of days, and we thought it would be best, instead of taking kind of a theme uh, and unpacking that, instead to switch gears and spend some time looking at the, uh, the, the news bites, the sound bites that have been coming across all of our feeds. And so I think that's going to be a really fun conversation. Before we do that, I always want to catch up with you and know how things are going. So what's happening in your world uh, and how is your spring going? My spring is going pretty well. I think both you and I uh, suffer a little bit from allergies. So I think we're both feeling that a little bit. Uh, but I'll say this, it's a lot better than it was when I was a kid. So no complaints really. Um, I also made an announcement recently that uh I have a new role as the communications director for the John Mack Institute. That's kind of something I have been saying that I, I had something to announce at some point I was excited about. So I've made that announcement. That is uh, really exciting for me. It really fits with my my vision, my values, um, a perfect alignment. So I couldn't be happier about that. And what a time to be doing it because as you say, there's so much going on uh, with this topic right now in the public. And even this week, there was so much that came out that really... I think impresses upon us this notion that we really are in uncanny times and that this is not just your usual uh, ufology kind of year. So I think, yeah, it'd be great for us to get into it. We kind of switched gears before we jumped in tonight because we we both decided, yeah, this is a, something that a topical uh, kind of concept album approach wouldn't maybe what we want to do this time. Instead, let's focus on what's going on, what it might mean for the big picture in terms of disclosure. I think it's going to be so fresh that you might even say minty fresh. Mm, I love that. I love a good minty freshness. So uh, excellent. And and congratulations, by the way, that uh, announcement about uh, the, the Jimmy uh, communications director. Very excited for you. I think it is an excellent fit. Uh, that organization will be well served uh, by your areas of interest and commitment to this topic. And the timing couldn't be better, in my opinion. Uh, there'll be a lot of things happening that will uh, necessitate uh, an active role of Jimmy in the conversation. So looking forward to where that goes. I appreciate that. Uh, and I really do feel like there's a kind of synchronistic timing that's going on here because with Jimmy, the goal isn't just to cover this topic and to represent experiencers that have been having these experiences uh, with this phenomenon over decades and longer, but also to actually think about how we could live differently as a collective community, which I think uh, based on where we are today, there's never been a more pressing matter to engage with. Absolutely. All right, well, we're going to jump right in here. Uh, I think we're going to hit the first. Uh, the, the first topic we're going to touch on is is probably the one that most folks are talking about the, this week, and that is the uh, the hearing that took place in the Senate uh, with Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick uh, and a couple of senators. It wasn't heavily attended. We do know that there was a closed. Uh, session of that hearing before the public session, uh, which is a little bit unusual. Uh, so maybe that's why some of the senators sort of dropped off in the public-facing uh, conversation. 
But nevertheless, it was really interesting to watch, uh, I think, quite a contrast from what we saw in the last hearing that took place uh, where we heard from uh, Moultrie and Bray. Uh, there was uh, a different tone uh, to the conversation and uh, in some ways more content that we could actually kind of sink our teeth, sink our teeth into, which I appreciated. Uh, the hot takes on social media were, uh, as I think many would expect, not very favorable. Uh, a lot of folks were pretty disappointed that there weren't any, uh, you know, sort of big revelations. Although I think those that have been following this subject really closely and who have uh, had conversations with those who have been working very heavily behind the scenes weren't all that surprised at what took place. Uh, we were, in many ways, kind of expecting what we saw. Uh, and weren't, uh, you know, sort of all that dismayed that the conversation had not been uh, catapulted into the into the net next phase or fourth or fifth or sixth gear, as Elizondo likes to allude to. I don't know that we're quite there yet, and that's okay uh, from all that we are hearing. Um, so as we kind of get into that topic, I know we wanted to first maybe set the stage a little bit with talking about something that we've touched on before. And uh, I know you'll want to unpack this a little bit, but that, that's the issue of neuro-linguistic programming and how language, uh, the language that we use to, to talk about a subject, it really frames the way in which we think. Uh, it defines the possibility space of, of what can happen or cannot happen. Uh, and so there was a good bit of that occurring in this conversation. And, and it doesn't even have to be intentional. I want to make sure that, that that point is made. I'm not necessarily making an argument here that Dr. Kirkpatrick sat down before the hearing and said, I want to use these words so that I can kind of really direct this in a specific way, but, but more so to say that it's something that in many ways is baked into our culture and is tied very closely into our uh, materialist, physicalist framework of looking at the world. And when you approach a problem as mysterious as the phenomena, uh, you're approaching it with the, the toolkit that you have. And, and the, those tools may be completely inadequate in order to be able to actually engage with, interact with, and understand this incredible mystery. Um, but where would you want to take this uh, with that concept of NLP? Yeah, I think there's a, a few things to touch on there. Number one is the language that's used. Neurolinguistic programming speaks to how both language, tone, uh, gestures, all sorts of different kinds of delivery mechanisms are sending a message that is meant to program people. This doesn't have to be something nefarious, uh, as in the Manchurian candidate or something. It just means that people who know how to do this well, whether they're public relations experts or you know spokespeople for the government or whatever, know that the language you use helps to frame the matter altogether, right? And you, when you ha are in the position where you get to decide which language you're going to use, you already are on the front foot because you can determine which direction the conversation goes. And that's why you'll often hear people talk about trying to get ahead of the curve uh, on a narrative. What they mean is if you get ahead of it before the information comes out, you can actually already steer it in a certain direction that's favorable for you, right? So there's, there's certain wordings that were used in this um, in this hearing, uh, certain just expectations in terms of a panel of Congress people and then a scientist, right? I, I was thinking about how in, in yester decade or yester century, we might have had doctors of the church or theologians or priestly authorities before a royal court, 
right? Um, King Charles or something, and and making their their statements and then kind of back and forth. What is God's will here? What can we say about the nature of reality and astronomy and those kind of things that that have come up in the past? Now what we have is a scientific authority that sits before a democratically elected congressional panel, right? So it's different times, but there's still certain expectations and norms that are baked into that procedure. So that's the first thing I would say when I think about how the entire thing was set up and how that steers the conversation in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And if any of you have worked in a corporate environment, uh, you're familiar with this as well. You probably do it all the time without even thinking about it, uh, particularly if you are giving a presentation to uh, a client or if you are uh, making a case about your performance to your boss, you're going to be using certain sets of language to kind of frame up how you are doing, how your business is performing uh, so that the the audience, the recipient of that information is is willing to receive it in the most favorable, positive light possible, right? And just as you said, we have a scientist here who who was really well-versed in science speak uh, and was very sober, uh, had very methodical, uh, you know, very, very cool and collected. And that's what you would want to see. So just that, that sort of persona of Sean Kirkpatrick as uh, the right person for the job and, uh, and also he signaled that, that he was that right person in other ways as well. If you'll recall from the hearing, he even made it a point to drop the fact that when the Chinese balloon uh, fiasco was happening, he was summoned in the middle of the night uh, to give his opinion on whatever it might be. I mean, just saying that you were summoned by authorities at this huge event uh, lends credibility to everything that he's going to say thereafter. And he's in the room with the, the decision makers uh, trying to understand what is going on. Therefore, he can be trusted uh, to uh, you know, proceed in a good faith way, uh, that, that everything is going according to plan. And in fact, we did hear that echoed by Senator Gillibrand after the hearing uh, in her comments that, that she had full faith in him, that uh, he, you know, he's the right person for the job, that he's really going to do the best that he possibly can. Um, and there is some, I think, question as to whether or not that actually is true. Um, but from a, a kind of a bureaucrat speak, it, it certainly is, right? So from from the, the framework of a politician or the bureaucrat, if he's kind of going through the motions and checking all those boxes, uh, you're just going to sit there and kind of nod along and be like, yeah, all this sounds good. Good to me. How much money do you need? Right? Exactly. You know, it's interesting because sometimes when you have the privilege of being the only scientist in the room kind of thing of that level, then you're going to speak in science speak and the, the mere mortals who don't have those kind of backgrounds are just assuming that you're, you're doing what you're saying and that this is partly what speaks to the NLP part. Just by using scientific language and in a very methodical, dry way, right? People talked about how that they were almost falling asleep during the hearing. But that speaks to this sort of impartial, objective, scientific analysis, right? So his very delivery was part of the the NLP aspect, right? That it sounds like a scientist who doesn't get emotional. He's not biased. He's just carefully, methodically, you know, almost painfully, slowly working through every single case. He talked about that, right? How he's gone through every case. He goes through a, a several steps, right, before they determine what it is. And if it's unclear, then he sends it to this other a committee or something that also gives their their assessment comes back and then he makes a final stamp of approval one way or the other. 
Uh, but it's interesting because you had a response from Gary Newland that I thought was quite interesting because then you have someone who also is a PhD in science and and has great familiarity with this topic specifically, and he has enough understanding to actually pay specific attention to the words that are used, the things that are said, the way things are framed. And so as an expert scientist, he can actually uh, notice a few things that maybe the average person is not going to notice. And so this is something Gary, Gary Nolan tweeted after the hearing, quote, it was as expected, but if, but if you define the science too narrowly, even a warp-driven gnat could not fit through the needle. Watch the definitions. Saying you are doing science or saying science should be done does not mean you are actually doing science properly, unquote. It's a pretty pointed statement, right? He's saying that don't be fooled by science speak alone. Pay close attention to definitions. I talk about this all the time, right? The parameters we set determine the possible answers. And we're going to get to that in a minute, I think, in terms of this, this ET hypothesis that was uh, talked about as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, first of all, I always love the, the the Nolan fastballs. He's he's got uh, some amazing zingers, uh, pretty much on demand. That guy is a like a tweet machine, um, and I think you're right. Perfectly kind of summed up an alternate perspective. Uh, but the quote that got a lot of attention related to this sort of defining or narrowing uh, the understanding of of what is science or not not science is the following. So Kirkpatrick said. Arrow has found no credible evidence thus far of extraterrestrial activity, off-world technology, or objects that defy the known laws of physics, unquote. Yes, and so this is what I tweeted in response to that. I said, quote, declaring there is no evidence for ET presence suggests we have already exhaustively determined what said evidence would look like. Considering such a presence would likely be more advanced than us suggests by itself that the first notion is foolhardy at best, unquote. My point being there, it's, a, it's kind of a preposterous statement to make because if we haven't even begun to talk about what that evidence would look like, how can you make such a statement, right? And again, it's sort of the, the, the lazy kind of response that, gets, that doesn't get caught these days the way that the press in its current... Um, iteration exists, right? And in, I think in previous decades, a more hard-hitting press that was really holding feet to the fire would say, well, ha has there been uh, a panel put together to decide what that evidence would be? And have you had different um, objective observers with understanding in these matters ring in on whether or not they think that's a fair assessment or a fair criteria, set of criteria to make that assessment? And if not, how is this statement anything more than propaganda, right? Because Again, it's what I'm getting at is it really is not saying much of anything. And yet for many people, they'll be like, oh, okay, well, then I guess it's just, you know, I guess it's just Chinese drones after all, right? Um, this is, again, the NLP part because he's making a statement that sounds substantive when it's really not. There isn't really, really even the kind of apparatus in place that could uh, hold this, right, to some sort of objective analysis and standards, right? So this is, again, part of the irony here we're talking about objective science. We're talking about establishing a very clear protocol, right? And yet that kind of statement is not scientific at all, right? So this is the kind of thing where we see um, him speaking out of both sides of his mouth to some degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would have loved for some hard-hitting follow-ups to statements like that. Uh, as you noted there, it would have been great to say, well, explain to us 
what what you would be looking for to know that it is extraterrestrial or not extraterrestrial. You know, how are you defining that just just generally, right? Um, what assumptions are you bringing to the table in order to, you know, get your mind around it's in that bucket or it's not in that bucket? Uh, I don't think that's ever been articulated. Uh, at least I've not heard it articulated uh, from that office. Um, I will say too, though, that this this statement in many ways kind of mirrors what the paper that he co-wrote with Avi Loeb was was getting at, and particularly the last part of the statement about objects that uh, defy the known laws of physics, right? So uh, again, kind of making the argument here that we've not seen anything fantastical uh, and and basically things really do need to behave in accordance with what we understand is possible in our science. Uh, so thus far, you know, we've not seen anything outside of those parameters. But 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 notably too here, n- no credible evidence of anything outside of the, those parameters. So you know, what is credible evidence? We don't know what that means. We don't know what the definition of credibility is in this context. Uh, does he consider a, a witness testimony uh, of an object that you know instantaneously accelerated to Mach two or three? Do we consider that to be, uh, you know, credible evidence? I mean, what what threshold does it have to meet in order to meet credibility? Right, great points. And uh, and John Ramirez, in a previous statement, we're going to talk about him later on, but he made a statement earlier, uh, weeks ago, about these kinds of hearings, and he said, "Pay close attention because when they say there is no evidence for no credible evidence, they're again they're not saying it, but what they're what they're actually speaking to is." The, the narrow parameters of what they've been examining, right? The narrow parameters of what they've been examining. So they might say, based on the footage we're looking at, we've not come across that. But we don't have access to sensor data. We don't have access or we're not considering expert witness data from F-18 pilots and radar operators, right? So it's not... So some people, some people right away got up in arms and said, well, what about this case and the Nimitz and this and this and this, you know? And and decades of experiencers having encounters and sightings, right? But what people need to realize, as John Ramirez pointed out, he's not saying it, but what he's what he's speaking to is the the narrow evidence they've been looking at according to the parameters that they've defined, which he has not even established publicly, right? So this again is a way to sour the public on this notion that it could be something non-prosaic while also not really addressing the broad evidence that actually is part of the public conversation, right? And of course, on top of that, one of the things that we were talking about before we went on the air is, is again, and it's, it's so unscientific, it kind of screams at us, and yet it's not really talked about, and that is that the only hypothesis he considered outside of something prosaic was ET, right? And any of us who've been in this topic for more than like nine days... Know that you don't have to be here very long before you get into the interdimensional question, the extratempestrial question, the cryptoterrestrial question, the ultra-terrestrial question, right? These are all other possibilities. So to say that it's only either something human, a nation state or a rogue kind of a human group that's done something, or it must be ET, is already a huge assumption that's not scientific, it's not objective. What criteria have been chosen to determine that only ET and prosaic are the options on the table, right? These are the kind of things that really scream at you when you think about it from a truly objective point of view, I think. Yeah, 100%. Um, 
it's uh, it, you know, it's very fascinating. I, I, you know, to take a, a kind of a pro approach to this, I, I was impressed that Ramirez, uh, and we're gonna, like you said, we're gonna talk a little bit more about him in a second here. But he he did say that one of the positive things from <clears throat> this hearing is that it does further the legitimacy of the topic, you know, generally and in particular amongst other agencies. And and I want to I want to kind of stay with this one for a second because that was talked about a good bit that uh, that there is uh, a greater a, a greater willingness and acceptance to report on UAP that there is uh, at least seemingly on the surface level a willingness and a collaboration amongst the heads of other agencies and and branches of the military uh, to normalize reporting of UAP you know if you see something say something and that sounds like it is starting to be the case. Now, you know, how those uh, reports are collated, how they are, uh, you know, accepted or discarded. I mean, that remains to be seen, but we are at least making it OK to have this conversation. Uh, and, and in fact, I will point out, too, that <clears throat> not only has Kirk Kirkpatrick mentioned this, but other uh, spokes folks have mentioned this as well, that this is a global phenomenon. Right. So there was um, and I, I forget his name, but he was a spokesman for the Space Force, essentially saying that very directly recently, that this is a, a global phenomenon. It's important that we, you know, we, we take, take a look at it. We're very serious about it for flight safety, all these things. And again, kind of defining that it's not a unique problem to the U.S. It's not necessarily a unique problem uh, to the Chinese or the Russians. Like it's, it's everywhere. And because it's everywhere, it's okay. If you're seeing something, we need to know what you saw, where you saw it. Let's get as much data as we possibly can. And then we're going to analyze that and and classify it, right? We're going to create a formal classification effort. That that is the task. I mean, I, I will say we're very good at doing that. We're very good at categorizing, classifying. That's like the epitome of our science. And in a way, is is looking at these things. And so to to kind of get that effort moving and get it formally established is is a very important piece of the overall process here, right? We. You know, when when you looked at the hearing and you saw there were only a couple of senators present, that should told you all you needed to know that there weren't going to be any you know amazing bombshells dropped by Sean Kirkpatrick because you don't drop a bombshell in front of a two and just t- two senators who are like, wait, you just said that we do have credible evidence of extraterrestrials. You're, you know, that is never going to happen in a hearing in this context, ever, ever. So to expect such would be, I think, completely naive. Very true. And you made a great point there, and I think we should we should hit on this because those of us intimately familiar with this topic that are obsessed with it and, and think about it and talk about it and research it every day can feel frustrated at the snail's pace of progress on the one hand. There's numerous things I want to say here and that we can get into. One is that you're absolutely right that we are now seeing a shift where not only are different uh, military personnel encouraged to report when they see things that seem anomalous, but they're actually uh, ordered to, right? This is part of their, the clear orders are that you do need to report on this because it could be a national security issue. Again, that's partly the way that military speak works, right? But nevertheless, you can understand from their point of view, you would definitely want to take that into account, which is very different than yesterday where people were basically, you know, uh, threatened with not getting their pension or not getting any kind of promotions if they talked about that silly stuff. So that's a big shift, right? And you're absolutely right that that is beginning to shift the tone. When we have press conferences, there isn't so much snickering. There isn't, you know, X-Files music. 
we think back to the <clears throat> famous situation after the the uh, Phoenix Lights uh, flap in the 90s where the governor of Arizona had one of his staff members walk on stage in an alien costume. Do you remember that? And then it made all the media present laugh and every, everyone kind of scoffed and laughed about it. He went on to say he regretted that, right? And that, that um, I think he went even as far as to say that he actually had seen something that night too, along with many, many, many other the people in the in the city of Phoenix, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also I want to say too, even you know, as the communications director for the John Mack Institute, one of the goals we have is to interface with academics, right? Media, academics, experiencers. And there's definitely a shifting perspective in academia to this, right? Which is really encouraging. Suddenly, there's a lot of people that want to study this, that see this as legitimate. They may not determine that it's ET or extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial, whatever, but they they recognize it's something, right? It's a it's it's representing a phenomenology that is that is really showing up in our world, even if it confounds some of our current understandings. And so there's a lot of academics that are very eager now to actually look into this. And we do need to have a, a multidisciplinary kind of approach here because this is not something that's just on the edges of what we already understand. It's something that really I think eclipses our our worldview altogether, I think is what what might be in play here. So we definitely want to engage these different kinds of disciplines together to try and figure out what's going on here. So you're absolutely right that that in itself is a very positive turn that for those of us who are intimately familiar, we can kind of lose the forest for the trees sometimes Mm -hmm. and not realize that actually, sure enough, this is happening. There is much more of a mainstream understanding that this is something, right? That that even if we think it's, um, again, not what the usual ufology folks would call it, something is going on that's worth looking into. And I think another piece that I want to introduce is the notion that if the secret keepers have information that they plan to release to the public, then all of these steps are actually steps towards an ultimate goal, right? That by normalizing this topic, right, by making it so the average American has heard about these topics. They've heard the word phenomenon, right? They've they've heard the word anomalous many more times this year than they ever have in history, right? We're talking about presidents, senators, right? Congress people coming forward and, and using this terminology, which is another kind of NLP approach because that puts a little hook in someone's brain, the average person, right? That That this is a thing so that later on when revelations do come forward, there's a place to put that revelation. You now have a hook you can hang it on. So there's numerous reasons why we can be encouraged by that. Yeah, 100%. Uh, as that culture uh, of normalcy increases, that sphere widens, uh, it just gets, it compounds. There's a compounding effect of that normalization. Uh, it becomes then uh, strange if you don't report it. If you are uh, a pilot and you're out on a military operation and you see something and you report it and that that something was also uh, tracked or observed on another sensor technology but that operator didn't report it you could see how they would be in the hot seat by not raising the issue that the pilot saw you know so because we you know clearly need everybody on the same page we can't have folks you know not reporting things due to stigma uh, so it's a it's a huge deal uh, and very exciting, I think, for uh, where we are headed uh, w- with the topic overall. Um, it's shaping up to be quite a big year. Now, there are some other things that were interesting in that hearing that I know we want to touch on. 
One was uh, regarding the whistleblowers. Now, we all have heard about the whistleblower uh, protections that were introduced in the legislation. Um, and that exchange was fairly interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, that there were about two dozen whistleblowers that the office had interviewed. And from what we've heard, uh, many of those interviews are quite lengthy, uh, at least a couple of hours. So they're, they're spending some good time with these individuals. Um, but also, interestingly, uh, it sounded as if that the office itself isn't actually looking for them. Uh, doesn't have a process uh, stood up just yet in order to uh, you know, give folks a an access point, a portal by which if you are a whistleblower, you can connect with them. And instead, all of those whistleblowers were referred to the office by the the Senate, uh, the senators or their staffers. Um, so that was pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, I think so you could even argue concerning uh, that, that we're still kind of waiting for uh, that aspect of this entire process to be stood up. Uh, two dozen whistleblowers feels significant to me. Uh, and the question naturally follows, which, by the way, wasn't asked. Uh, well, can you give us a little sample of what they were whistleblowing about? You know, what are we talking about here? Um, and, you know, obviously that's probably not going to be discussed in an open hearing. But a, an example of a question that I think would be on the minds of, of many, many folks watching that exchange. Indeed. And I would just offer my usual commentary here that what I've heard is that some of what's been testified to by those whistleblowers is is quite extraordinary. And uh, the kind of information that really should uh, shake this loose in a way that hasn't been before, I would suggest. But to your point about standing up some sort of public interface that makes it easy, right, for, for potential whistleblowers to either have a 1-800 number they can call or a website they can contact people through, you know, we learned that there actually isn't even a website yet, right? And, and you and I talked about how it doesn't take long to throw up a basic website where you could at least channel the contact, right? So that, that raises questions about how much is this really a good faith effort? I think that's a, a fair um, criticism some people have raised. And then Christopher Sharp of the Liberation Times uh, tweeted this comment, quote, the Daily Record has learned from people familiar with the matter but not authorized to discuss it publicly that the Arrow is asking whistleblowers to pay for their own travel and accommodations to give testimony in Washington, D.C., unquote. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I would at least want a per diem uh, if I was going to have to get out there and uh, spill the beans on a black budget SAP. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of bonkers. And I, I heard as well that there was one incident where a testimony was taken from a whistleblower, essentially just on an open, unsecured line, uh, which it doesn't sound like it would be the way you would want to collect that kind of sensitive uh, information at all. So uh, definitely have some concerns. It sounds as if uh, even that, and we talked about this off the air, so I want to make sure we touch on this, that, that you know, he, he was very thankful to the, the senators for referring those whistleblowers to him, but that's exactly what you would say uh, so that you're not going to get like the wrath of God coming down on you uh, if you if you you know aren't open to talking to the folks that are referred in your direction. Um, so and we and again going back to that corporate conversation we had earlier, a lot of us have experiences like that where we're we're sort of uh, you know we're we're performing as if uh, we're really grateful for this opportunity or we're thankful for this uh, you know feedback or whatever it is. Well, whereas secretly we're just like well you know leave me alone. I don't want to have to deal with this. Um, you know, to just get out of my kitchen, so to speak. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's not great. Um, the other part about that exchange was 
apparently that a plan had been submitted uh, to uh, his uh, superiors in OS, uh, OUSDI, and I believe the plan had been submitted in December. Uh, so we're basically like four months down the road without any kind of, uh, you know, approval of that recommended uh, plan of action there. I mean, the pace is absolutely infuriating if we're going to take this uh, seriously, right? Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's not great. Um, I've, obviously, I would hope everybody has lots of questions around the that entire enterprise, right? I mean, for, for example, just an, an, another one here. Right. If you if you have whistleblowers at all coming from within your organization, from within the government and the agencies that are supporting the institution, that should tell you something in and of itself that this is not just prosaic activity happening in, in our skies. Right. Because why why are they why, why do they even exist? Why, why why would they need to come forward? Why would they need to feel like they needed the, the, those protections? Well, because there is something happening and, you know, it's not just. Uh, black U.S. technology, because if it were just black U.S. technology, that would be kept fairly secret for the good of the state. Uh, so it goes beyond just that as a as a base, uh, you know, criteria. Indeed, and and just to speak again about the whistleblowers and the kind of testimony, you know, what we're hearing is that the testimony has to do with legacy crash retrieval programs. So of course, if that's the case, that completely blows out of the water just this notion of there may be anomalous things in our skies, right? And by the way, uh, can you give the full uh, full uh, meaning of the of the acronym, AERO? Uh, the All-Domain Aerospace mm, I should Resolution. Resolution Office. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. The archive. Right. So the reason why it's All-Domain is because there's this recognition that it's not just in the sky necessarily, right? We see these things going into the ocean, right? Coming out of lakes. We see them reportedly even emerging from solid rock and that kind of thing, right? So this is this is an important shift, right? This is saying that you know, initially people were uh, skeptical when the government went from UFO to UAP, which was initially unidentified aerial phenomena, right? Now it's even moved further to unidentified anomalous phenomena. Again, the point being that it's an acknowledgement that what we are having reported is more than just objects in the sky. It can be something that manifests in your home that in other circles might be considered poltergeist kind of activity, right? It can be uh, something, again, that that just seems to not uh, like transmedium vehicles, right? Meaning that they are able to move into different kinds of mediums like space to the sky to the ocean, right? Um, so that that's that's really telling. And I think that's a good thing that, that that's happened. But in terms of these crash retrievals, the notion is that it's not just things being observed that seem to behave anonymously or, or, or anomalously, but that we actually have perhaps retrieved some vehicles that have either crashed or landed, right? There's the whole question there of how does that happen? But supposedly that has happened, allegedly, right? And that there's been reverse engineering or at least attempts of that, right? Which gets into whole the Bob Lazar kind of testimony and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, Colonel Corso talked about in his book, The Day After Roswell, that he was in charge of an office that actually was <clears throat> tasked with taking some of the materials, the metamaterials and whatnot, that were recovered from some of these crashes and passing it on to leading U.S. industry that would give leading U.S. industry a, a, you know, a leg up on the rest of the competition around the world. Now, again, that's alleged. We don't know that for sure. But the point being that 
just to remind people that there's much more going on behind the scenes than what we're seeing talked about in these these public testimonies and these kind of hearings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, undoubtedly. Um, you know, c- c- controlling the narrative is very important. Uh, and um, I think that was on full display uh, during that hearing. Um, and, you know, as you were unpacking things just there further, I had this uh, thought of, you know, if you had to sit down and kind of think about, okay, we need to get the public from point A over here to point Z, you know, how are we going to do that? You can't just immediately like, you know, warp over to Z. You have to go through this sort of phase process. Okay, well, let, let, let's start off with this. Now let, let's transition to this kind of language. Let, let's transition to that. Let's now make this a possibility. You know, let's amplify these certain voices of, of credibility. You know, you you have to do that. Like, you, it, it's just to remind folks, it's the responsible thing to do for a state. And and we can rail on states all day long. Believe me, I'm not a huge fan. Like, it's, uh, you know, they've all got their problems. But when you're talking about the livelihood of, you know, billions of people, uh, millions and billions of people, you know, because of the world order, you can't just, you know, willy-nilly, uh, you know, rip the bandaid off and hope for the best. You know, it's just not, it's not, it's not something that you would want them to do. And you wouldn't do it if you were in their position. No reasonable, rational person would. Um, so stepping down from that soapbox, there were some other interesting exchanges that took place in the hearing, uh, between Gillibrand and Kirkpatrick, uh, related to, uh, aspects of, you know, do you have what you need, Dr. Kirkpatrick, to perform the the job that that you're doing? Uh, do you have enough money? Is the reporting structure okay? I always find that question funny when you have two bosses who are who are watching the conversation take place live. Uh, is your reporting structure okay? Uh, do you do you have any critiques for the bosses that that you have? I mean, no person in their right mind's going to be like, yeah. I mean, get me out from under the thumb of Moultrie over here. Uh, he's driving me bonkers. So you know, you have to watch uh, Kirkpatrick very gingerly and diplomatically kind of tiptoe around that entire conversation, uh, you know, notice what he is saying and also what he's not saying. And also Gillibrand playing that game as well, right? So you, you, she she is aware of what he is saying to her uh, by her signaling back to him, you know, I look forward to this or get back to me on that. Or, you know, she she knows what he is saying to her when he is basically hinting that there are some deficiencies in the reporting structure. There are some deficiencies in the authority of the office itself to collect the information that it requires. Uh, he's not going to, you know, hang them out to dry publicly, but he he absolutely hinted that there were some issues there. Um, do you want to touch on that? Like, what what do you think are some of the friction points that the office is encountering? Well, first thing I would say is that yeah, you know, what you speak to there is political theater, right? Where where you're at least going through the motions and saying the things you need to say. So if you're in um, Gillibrand's uh, seat, then you need to ask, do you have everything you need? You know, are, are we equipping you with what you need to do your job? She needs to have said that, right? To tick off on her checklist that I, 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 I did what I was supposed to. And he, like you say, either needs to say yes, or if he doesn't say yes, he needs to creatively phrase it in such a way that he doesn't make it sound like he's throwing his bosses under the bus, so to speak, right? Um, but that's, that's political theater to some degree. Um, another thing I would bring up too is that some people are frustrated in the UFO community when after the fact, Gillibrand seems to talk about this is important because we need to protect our airspace and 
If there's foreign adversaries that have made leaps in technology, we need to understand that because that presents a threat for the future uh, sovereignty of the United States, that kind of thing. I understand some people get frustrated by that. Some people in the UFO crowd also think that sounds like a threat narrative, quote unquote, right? But I think you think back to what Christopher Mellon and Luis Elizondo have tried to, now the, the approach they've taken is to understand who you're talking to, to understand your audience, right? Read the room, as they say, right? So if you're speaking to Congress people, right, whose, whose job is to represent the United States and protect the sovereignty of the United States, then you can't just, or you could try to tickle their fancy by saying, there's some interesting things in this guy. Aren't you curious? But that's not going to behoove them to take action, like saying, there are some anomalous things that are in the sky that are clearly in our physical reality that we're not um, able to prevent from coming in. They're kind of, you know, with impunity passing through U.S. airspace. When you say that, then both the military and the congressional leaders have to say, as part of their job, we must respond to this, right? We must try to account for what these things are. So that kicks the whole process into gear. So even if you know that it's not likely foreign adversary, in fact, if you know darn well it's not foreign adversary because you've already seen data that convinces you of that fact, you still need to behoove them to start going through the process themselves of determining whether that's the case. And if it's not, then you get to the second level question. Well, if it's not China or Russia or Iran or whatever, who is it? What is it, right? Is it even human? Those are questions we get to, but this is part of the political theater that you need to incorporate if you're going to get to these answers through a governmental kind of stream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's talk about one of those aspects as well, uh, and that was this conversation around uh, the Title 10 versus Title 50 authority. Uh, and I want to read a, a tweet from Tim McMillan on this issue, which I thought was uh, quite helpful. Um, so I'll kind of pick up mid-tweet here, but basically, uh, you know, he said that the revelation that Arrow doesn't have Title 50 authority, and what this means is that Arrow has limited access to Title 50 information, which includes covert action and most intelligence missions carried out by agencies like the CIA, NRO, NGA, or NSA. By saying it would be nice to have Title 50 authority, Kirkpatrick was taking a huge shot across the bow at Title 50 agencies that likely haven't been playing ball with Arrow. In essence, Arrow may only have access to 20% of the U.S.'s full collection of potential. Uh, that's you know, quite a statement. Obviously, there's a little bit of speculation in that statement as well. But I think the bottom line being, uh, if you don't have the right tickets, you can't open the right doors to get the information that you might need to adequately resolve some of these inst instances and reports. Uh, you know, that, that to me, sounds very concerning, um, it, particularly if you're trying to leave no stone unturned here. Uh, you can't unturn... Most of the stones that happen to be, you know, in your in your garden. Indeed, I think back to to nine eleven, and then afterwards, when there was this recognition that the different agencies were not only ta not talking to each other sometimes, the different intelligence agencies, the CIA and the FBI and whatnot, but sometimes there was even kind of this adversarial kind of relationship between them, and that that had perhaps let some uh, data squeak through that could have been game changing, right? could have perhaps prevented 9-11 from happening. So after that, 
the Department of Homeland Security was established, right, to try to pull together these different agencies and collate data so that you would have that no stone unturned kind of response. And I remember Christopher Mellon saying that that's kind of what we need here, that up until now, these different agencies, and even within one agency, you have siloed sections, right, with a need to know that's very limited. And as we talked about before, allegedly, again, much of this has been moved into private hands, right, into private corporations, aerospace corporations, partly so that you can, again, allegedly hide some of this cutting edge technology in, the, in terms of crash retrievals because you can have it protected under, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Intellectual property, basically, right? You can, you can claim that this doesn't, this doesn't apply for FOIA, right? That, that's, that's key, right? So there's ways that you can get around these kind of uh, declarations that we're going to make government activity transparent to, to people, right? One of the ways you can avoid that is by putting it into, move it into a private corporation. They have certain safeguards because of intellectual property law and whatnot. But all that is to say, I think, like you say, what Kirkpatrick is getting at here is that we still have that siloing of information going on, even within the same agency. Someone who sits across me might not know what you know, right? This has been, you know, Jacques Vallée in his most recent uh, journal talks about this, just how siloed the information is and how difficult it is to really understand what's going on. So yeah, I think that this is a fair point Kirkpatrick is making is that if you really want me to be the person that's looking at this, then we need more of a coordinated effort. And we're still a long way from that, I think is what he's getting at. And, and I think too, it's worth pointing out that uh, our intelligence agencies operate with a great deal of immunity from both public and, uh, you know, official government scrutiny, right? And there, and there are some, some of those are good, there are good reasons for some of that. Uh, you, you know, we have a lot of dirty laundry, let's put it that way. Um, and so it makes sense that we don't want to air all of that out, uh, not just to our own people, but to our adversaries. Uh, we want to be very careful about that. And so it's not a surprise that these agencies are dragging their feet to this conversation because there's no incentive for them really to, to do to do so. You know, that like if, if, if it comes out later on down the road that, uh, you know, such and such agency, you know, withheld some insane secret. I mean, what what are the ramifications to that agency? I, I don't know that they're that severe. Right. So it's 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 a kind of a slap on the hand situation. So it behooves them just to kind of continue to play along and, 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 you know, obfuscate or just not even participate in the conversation here. I'm also thinking of the air force, which but I, don't, I don't know that the air force was mentioned at all in the hearing, uh, but they're, they're certainly, uh, you know, part of this conversation, but have been a very quiet part of it. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very interesting, right? I, I see a lot of, uh, CYA happening in that hearing. Uh, as you said, you know, not only from the politicians, but from the office itself, uh, making sure to say certain things that that are on the record, um, but but we all know that by saying things on the record, even if we're very careful about saying them, uh, we we have defined uh, the the position that we are making, and and that record can be referenced. We can look back and go, well, you told me in this conversation that it wasn't extraterrestrial, and at that time, you're now telling me you also knew X Y Z, yet you withheld that you know opinion. So, or you, you took us down a different path of speculation. 
so that 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 really creates some problems if you if you are too restrictive in what is possible. Um, and I don't know, maybe he did a careful enough job here, I think, to kind of protect him from, uh, you know, kind of uh, the ramifications of the blowback later on. His words were very carefully chosen uh, where he could kind of be like, well, you know, I, I, what I said, I still stand by that. At the time, we didn't have credible evidence and credible in, the, in that case. And the definition that I didn't give you was, in fact, I needed, uh, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson to say it was an ET, you know, something like, like that. Exactly. That's That's the thing. I mean, it can come down to a certain adjective that's used to qualify a statement, right? That That's all you need to protect yourself sort of legally in these situations, right? So credible evidence, right? That that one qualifier there, right? Like you say, without defining that, there's no way you can hold his feet to the fire on that. Because like you say, he could have a definition like, you know, if Neil deGrasse Tyson would not be convinced by this evidence, you know, if Mick West would not be convinced by this evidence, then it's not considered credible yet, right? And if there's, again, if the congressional panel is not catching that and saying, oh, oh, okay, you said, so you said credible, just for the record, can you establish what determines what's credible and not, right? That's the kind of thing where you could actually then hold them to that. But but by letting him get away with that kind of vague statement, um, it gives him a lot of leeway in terms of what, what comes up in the future. Again, and I think at this point, the panel was comfortable doing that, but we're just sort of trying to point out here how much an NLP kind of uh, situation is in play here where the language used, the the qualifications used, the lobbying back forth of a political speak is is designed to move this forward, move the ball down the field. Since Nathan introduced a football analogy in the last episode of the <laughs> frame, we'll now go forward with that. Moving a football down the field without really spilling the beans fully, right? But that's kind of what we can look at this is that it's one more step in a process towards warming the public up to what perhaps might come in the future in terms of revelations. Yeah. Uh, there were some also some interesting things presented, uh, you know, again, just to contrast, it would be cool to watch the, the last, the hearing before this one, like right next to this one and, and just sort of observe the contrast between the two. The one notable contrast was the very first video that was shown was of a metallic sphere in the Middle East. I mean, <laughs> what you know like is it it's either a balloon or it's a it's a flying sphere we don't know how right the spheres don't fly on their own volition uh and they don't they're not aerodynamic in any at any rate so uh to kind of lead with that one as a good example of uh, something that is still in that unknown space in and of itself is i think pretty pretty big uh you know maybe we're not you know sort of giving it the kudos that it deserves to sort of put that video out there. And it, it was quite clear as well. And it, it also mirrored the, uh, the still images that we have uh, seen from Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp of the Mosul orb. Uh, so we have uh, two instances here, two separate instances here of, of flying metallic spheres uh, that, you know, to me, they're either balloons or they're non-conventional technologies, right? Uh, so I, I'm not, not sure what other bucket they would fall into. Uh, but what, what was your, your take on that on that footage? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a fascinating uh, display, again, of, of political theater to some degree because I think he accomplished a couple of things by showing two videos, right? He showed one that looked anomalous, but they've been able to figure out what it was and it was prosaic after all then showed another one that has not yet been determined uh, to be classified in one of these prosaic forms, right? 
But I first of all, I want to point that out. When you show an, a video that to the naked eye, to the average person, looks anomalous, and then you're able to show how you went through a process to determine that actually it's very explainable after all, and it's nothing, nothing surprising. It was just an airplane or something, right? And then you show the next one and say, this is an example of one that we're still in the process of. What you're, what you're suggesting, what you're planting in people's minds is that even though these both look anomalous, because the first one went through a process and we figured out what it was, that's very likely going to be the case. He's not saying that, but it kind of is implied in the, in the presentation, right? But like you say, it's very interesting because at first people thought, oh, is that Jeremy Corbell's Mosul Orb, right? But it turns out it wasn't. It's just very, very similar. And it's interesting because some people, and Jeremy Corbell have talked, has talked about this along with George Knapp, that initially people thought, well, there is like a vapor trail or something, right, in, in that. And then as Kirkpatrick pointed out, actually, it wasn't a vapor trail or exhaust plume. It was actually just a, um, an artifact of the actual video, right? That it was actually the image moving across, the object moving across the screen was leaving an artifact behind of itself kind of thing, like a blur kind of thing, right? So that was, again, I think really helpful to, to point out that he's doing his job and determining it. Sure enough, this does not have an exhaust plume like you would expect. Because like you pointed out, orbs don't tend to, especially if, the, if it is metal and it kind of looks metallic, then how is that thing staying aloft, right? How is it propulsing, right? And you and I talked about before we went on the air, it's interesting how there's statements made around not observing any uh, unknown physics and that kind of thing, right? But then we see a video of an orb that's seemingly moving in, at least initially, in a, in a, in a means that you can't exactly explain according to, at least to the naked eye, according to the physics, we understand how it's staying aloft. We don't see an exhaust plume. There's no wings, right? So... So how is this thing moving, right? Like you say, it could be a balloon perhaps, right? But it's moving pretty quickly for a balloon. Um, so th these are these are interesting uh, points to make, which reminds me of another uh, recent video that came out. I'm, sh I'm sure you saw this one where uh, there's that kind of object, the plane is flying and an object comes flying over top of the plane, right? Mm -hmm. Now, this is a good example of, I just want to remind people that but that most of these things will end up being prosaic, right? We're, we're talking about the unusual cases. And on top of that, I think we have to allow for the fact that whatever is operating these vehicles, I think really has a lot to say about when they will even be observed, right? I think that, in other words, when we see them, especially captured in kind of like military footage, it, it's almost like it's parading out there. Like uh, George Knapp has suggested that, right? That it's not like it's Oh, oh, shoot, they caught us. They saw us, right? It's actually, no, let's, the, the, naval, the naval groups are seeing like 30 of these a day, right? With all sorts of different shapes. That's what's being reported, right? By, by the naval groups and reported to people like Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp. So that doesn't sound like something that's trying to hide. It sounds more like, uh, again, we don't understand the psychology necessarily, but at least the way we would think about it, it sounds almost like, hey, hey, here I am. What do you think? Kind of thing, right? So uh, these are interesting things to, make note of, but, but in that example of that video that's been floating out there now, um, one thing I noticed was, again, this is where you can actually be fooled by the footage because it looks like the thing is flying towards the plane, right? Perhaps even a great clip, but actually in that kind of situation, if you've ever been in a plane and something sort of flies over you, it might actually be pretty much stationary, but it's still going to look like it's moving because you're moving, right? So these are you know, so in other words, that could have been a balloon potentially, right? And it would look like it's coming at you and people go, 
that thing's going way too fast for a balloon. But it may just be an artifact of the fact that you, the, the, the plane is moving forward. And so it gives the impression that that object is coming at a great clip. But it might not be. But these are the, the kind of things that, that need to be analyzed uh, when they determine what they are. Yeah, uh, totally. And, and the... Um... You know, it, it's interesting. And if I could be charitable, and I, you know, I tend to be charitable by default, so it, it is a weakness that I have. But uh, to to show a video of a metallic sphere uh, in that official capacity and to label it as un, as still unresolved, uh, and the fact that it is very much looks the same as the sphere presented by Jeremy Corbell. You know, we're talking about framing and neurolinguistic programming, and 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 getting people primed to be open to these things. Well, what what have I just done? I've connected these two objects together, and whereas on one end of that connection, I have someone who's not uncomfortable with pr a pretty wide range of speculative theory about this, and is known to be kind of the UFO guy. Uh, and then on the other end, you have the scientist, right? But we've made a connection here between these two objects, and and that does uh, play a role in the way in which we now look at objects that are going to be similar, but also look at the legitimacy of these two different efforts, the legitimacy of what Jeremy is doing and George is doing, uh, which gets a lot of flack sometimes, by the way, and the legitimacy of Arrow. We've now, in a way, conjoined these two, uh, you know, at least in this aspect. And we, we've, we've, you know, you, depending on, on your bias, I suppose you could say, well, now it's lowered the legitimacy, in my mind, of Kirkpatrick, or it's raised the legitimacy of Corbell and Knapp, or vice versa, right? So I find that very interesting. And, uh, and just, again, Another example of how this uh, hearing, I think, plays a pivotal role as another stepping stone in the, in the path that we need to uh, lay, lay before us. Indeed. And I, I would suggest, again, when people really think about every single word that's spoken, every gesture that's made, every bit of evidence that's shown, I would suggest it's carefully, carefully chosen beforehand. So again, the fact that those two videos were shown the fact that one has been resolved by going through the the, the process that Kirkpatrick and his uh, colleagues have set up, and that the other one is midstream. He made that point, right, that it's midstream. So again, what's implied there is once the full process has happened there, that that too will likely be resolved. He didn't say that. He doesn't have to say that. That's the point, right? You plant that notion in people's mind. That's where the neurolinguistic programming comes in, even to the point where I even wonder if, this is just speculation, but I just wonder if he has a strong leaning already of they will be able to explain that one. And and that will actually further this notion that these are all ultimately explainable, right? Which speaks to, I think, what we want to get to next, which you can sort of lean in with in terms of turning these UAP into SEP. Yeah, exactly. Man, I love these acronyms. Uh, all right. So I had not heard this acronym before, or if I did, I certainly didn't retain it. Uh, but SEP, somebody else's problem. And uh, Senator Ernst uh, picked up on that right away when, uh, or actually I think she even introduced it and he parroted it back to her. Uh, but it, it, he made a, a, a very clear point that what he wanted to do was that you know, the mission of that office was basically to, to, to 
you know, get itself out of the business of, uh, of being even involved with this and, and normalize the, uh, the collection, the analysis, the entire process from start to finish and make that a standard process that is baked into uh, the uh, standard operating procedures of all of our military branches that they then own uh, UAP uh, and they all are owning that uh, just like they own everything that, that they do now, that they have a, a way in which they're supposed to use their sensor platform. They're supposed to train their operators in how they report on what, what they experience and how they interact with you know, objects that are certain of a certain kind. So normalizing that across the board uh, so that it is no longer Arrow's problem, but somebody else's problem. I, I just love it. What, what did you think about that one? Well, a few things come to mind. Number one, and this is really, really careful political theater when you think about it, because when you say, and he did say this, that his goal is to eventually work himself out of a job in the sense that his goal was to eventually establish protocols by which you could you could determine what these things were and then make sure that existing agencies improve their own protocols, their own tools of analysis so they could perform those same functions so that in the end you would not need an arrow, right? So what I mean, it sounds like, again, he didn't say it, he doesn't have to. It's implied that what we have here is a lack of sufficient protocols and tools of analysis in place in existing agencies to determine what these things are. Now, if he had said something different, imagine how different the, the vibe would have been if he'd said, I want to make it clear today that we're seeing things that are so anomalous that my expectation is that this office is going to be a permanent, permanent office fully funded on the level of the FBI or the CIA uh, or the Na National Security Agency, because this is a, a major phenomenon that stretches our very understanding of what is real. <laughs> Imagine if that had been his response, right? As opposed to what he said, which is that my goal is to work myself out of a job, basically, and eventually establish protocols by which we can determine through the usual tools of scientific inquiry to determine what these things are, because ultimately they had prosaic explanations, in other words. And once we have those protocols established in existing agencies, problem solved, right? He didn't say that exactly, but again, that's what's implied. Yeah, I can almost see the SNL skit right now. Uh, you know, the scientist walks in the room. Okay, everybody calm down. The scientist is here. Uh, nothing crazy to see. And during this entire conversation, there are, you know, aliens standing behind him, you know. He's and he's saying, no, no, it's it's fine. Everything's okay. We we we've got a process. We know know what this is. It's not that, uh, you know. It definitely had that kind of uh, subtext in a way. If I, if I'm being uncharitable, right? That that he's uh, uh, bringing that uh, you know cold rational analysis uh, to this intractable problem that uh, you know, we should stop uh, entertaining the the speculative theories of. Of bloggers and social media people, you know, let the scientists do their job, right? Because uh, once the scientists do their job, then we'll take it from the explained or from the unexplained into the category of the explained, and and then we're and our, our work here is done. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. Uh, you know, I, I I do wonder how that's going to play later down the road, right? Uh, and I think before the hearing, there were several uh, folks who were you know, fairly connected, who made statements to that effect, right? That whenever Kirkpatrick says, uh, you know, it will basically kind of be the millstone around his neck later on if he if he isn't careful, right? 
Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. Time will tell what kind of corner he may or may not have painted himself into there. Indeed. And um, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there where you said that basically not only did he describe what he's doing and what his office is doing, but how that stands in opposition or contrast to what has been happening in the blogosphere and the in social media, uh, right? In terms of, he, he kind of did take a, a swing at that and said that basically the only reason why that thing has become a big thing with all this conversation and speculative kind of analysis is because they are not bringing to bear the tools of rationality and the scientific method, right? And a clear, established, cold, calculated uh, a method of inquiry that can determine slowly and surely what these things actually are, right? So definitely um, not only tooting his own horn and his own office, but also taking a bit of swipe at the, at the, at the rest of us kind of thing. But I would also point out that I know that our perspective would be we're completely pro-science here. We, we want scientific inquiry here. Again, this, this gets to what we talked about earlier in terms of, you know, th this is a step forward in that sense, right? Whenever you normalize that, um, then you're going to have more and more people that feel justified in stepping into the ring, right? So there may be people who are still very skeptical of the notion that this is anything non-prosaic, but at least now they can perhaps get funding and approval from their academic departments to actually study this, right? And that's a good thing, right? Uh, because those of us who've been intimately familiar with this know there's, so there's something there, there is a there there, as I like to say, then let's bring in as many people as we can. And I think this is a sign that things are moving forward, not only in terms of engaging with academia, uh, but also as that happens more and more, then the media is going to slowly but surely be more comfortable jumping into the ring too, because not only is there political precedence now for discussing these matters and using terms like UAP, right, and uh, anomalous and phenomenon, but you have, you know, established academic departments at, at well-respected universities around the world also uh, inquiring about this and, and looking into it. So this, again, is, is a win-win in, in the big picture. Mm-hmm. Yep. You've got to win over the establishment. And I think that's exactly what this is doing. Uh, now, switching gears a little bit here uh, to, to some slightly different topics, but also been you know, really hot topics this week and even as recent as today. Uh, you know, we know that Ross Coulthard has uh, talked a lot recently uh, about uh, in conversations that are taking place increasingly in uh, sensitive compartmented information facilities or SCIFs. Uh, and in particular, we just heard that there is uh, a, a gathering of intelligence heads at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, that, at least from from one person who was who commented on this gathering, uh, was unprecedented in the in the history of this particular committee. Uh, so there's a show and tell happening at Wright-Patterson uh, that is certainly very interesting. Um, that's weird because when I think of Wright Patterson, I don't think it has anything to do with ufology, right? There's zero connection to ufology at all. Just another Air Force base, I guess. Yes, indeed. Uh, Tim McMillan was quoted as saying this on Twitter today. This is incredibly bizarre. Senior leadership from nearly every U.S. intelligence agency and members of the Select Committee on Intelligence are at Wright Pat for a briefing and only local media in Dayton is reporting on it, unquote. So his point is to, to what you said, that this is unprecedented, right? And now perhaps people might think this is to do with like the recent uh, 
classified information leak that happened on Discord, right? Maybe it's it's the different, you know, political leaders saying we need to get together and talk about how we can prevent this from happening. Maybe, but you know, you put you you add up uh, the uh, accused here, and it's certainly at least intriguing, right? We have this office established to look into anomalous phenomena, right? We have um, political leaders at a high level talking about anomalous objects, even when we think back to the the balloon gate kind of scenario, right? Interestingly, recently on the Need to Know podcast, I'm not sure if you caught this, but Ross Coulthard said that he's heard reports that one of the objects that was shot at and was hit, something fell from the object, but the object did not go down. Contrary to what has been reported or at least assumed in the reporting, right? Which is very, very interesting. So again, I was saying this is kind of what I've heard as well, allegedly, is that there's more to to it than meets the eye, right? And that sort of kicked off this entire new round of interest and inquiry and political statements about this entire topic, right? And then you follow that up over the, over the spring here, now where we have these senior leadership gathering at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And just in case people are not familiar, this is probably the most famous place right alongside Area 51 and S4 and all that in, in Nevada where there have been reportedly been crash retrievals taken too, right? And even alien bodies taken too, right? Patterson is at the center of that entire historical narrative. And this is exactly where, as we speak, in the midst of all these conversations about offices investigating anomalous phenomena, at the very same time, this is happening at Wright Pat with an unprecedented number of political leaders gathering together, intelligence groups and whatnot, to discuss something, right? So it certainly is suggestive, if nothing else. I mean, it's weird, man. Uh, <laughs> it is super strange. Uh, you know, I don't know if they're pulling the bodies out of the freezer down there. I mean, what, what, I don't know what's going on. Uh, you know, of course, I, I, that's a little bit tongue in cheek. I, I have no idea. I mean, I am just speculating. But like you said, the lore, the UFO lore about Wright Patterson is uh, very rich uh, with um, you know, interesting you know, stories of, of, uh, material and craft and bodies and, you know, secret labs and all those kinds of things. And I think even, um, General McCasland, uh, was in charge of a laboratory there at one point. Uh, so, and of course, those of you who don't know, you know, he's the, the general who was connected to Tom DeLong, which kind of kicked off this most recent, uh, uh, you know, fervor into, into this entire topic. So, uh, it's it's very very strange, um, and the low level of publicity is also strange. I mean, it's I guess you could argue that uh, you know keeping it on the down low is just maybe smart uh, because you have so many important people gathered in one place. Uh, you want to make sure that you're thinking uh, of the secu- the security concerns there. Uh, that being said, they're at an air force base. Uh, I would hope it would be one of the most secure places that they, they could be, regardless of who knows that they're there. Uh, or not, um, and uh, and the fact that it's not you know made its way to any kind of national news media at all is a little bit peculiar. Um, you know, I'm certainly not one to say that uh, the government has uh, you know buttons that that it presses to say you know talk about this story on CNN, talk about this story, and I, I don't think that, that that's the case. But it, but there it, but it is true that there are ties that every one of these large media organizations has ties with these government agencies and when the government wants a story to you know make the rounds it will 
do what it does. It'll call those journalists and say, hey, I've got something interesting to tell you that you might that your network might want to air a story on. And uh, the network then has to judge, am I being played here uh, by the state? Should I air this story? Should I not air this story? Uh, you know, what, if I don't air it, will my competitor air it? And then it'll be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, chasing the hot stories like they are. So I'm going to lose some viewership. Right. So, it, but that's not happened. That story hasn't hit the other network. So, uh, definitely peculiar. Um, we can only speculate, but man, crazy connections there. Yeah. And one last piece I'd add before we move on to the next part with uh, John Ramirez and what he's been saying recently is that. Again, can you can you uh, tell us what SCIF stands for again? Yes, yeah, Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility. Right. So what Ross Coulthard reported on was that various political leaders have been given uh, classified briefings in these facilities, right? And so just to be clear, even an Air Force base is not considered generally secure enough for these kinds of classified briefings. There are specific facilities that have insane levels of security uh, installed so that there's no way that there could ever be any concern of, of an adversary or something overhearing what's being spoken. So Ross's point was pretending to balloon gate, right? This whole notion of these objects that came over the US airspace were shot down. Some of them were not shot down. Some of them were retrieved. Some were not retrieved. But there's a lot of confusion about what happened. And I would suggest perhaps even that that was by design, right? Again, part of this this notion of moving the narrative forward. But Ross's point was, if this was really just about Chinese balloons, why do you need to have the briefing in a skiff, right? You only do that when it's the most sensitive information that you're taking the highest security uh, precaution you possibly can. So again, that in itself is suggestive of something really significant happening there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we will wait and see uh, if anything material comes out of that. Hopefully there are some uh, intrepid reporters uh, who have some access there that are going to dig up uh, some extra nuggets around that particular story. Definitely be keeping our eyes on that. Well, one last point before you jump on too, I just want to point this out because you made me think of something. And that is that I think you're absolutely right that what, when these things are happening, it kind of is, is, a, is a cookie offered to the media, to the press to say, do you see what we're doing over here? We're having this unprecedented uh, gathering of officials at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. In other words, one of the things I've suggested or that I've heard in the grapevine, so to speak, is that part of the, the move towards disclosure allegedly involves the media also playing a role, right? So we need academics, we need media, we need politicians all moving forward on this so that this can become normalized for our collective society, right? So when these kind of things happen, it's also, I think, a kind of political theater that is trying to behoove media to take notice and say, why is this happening? It shouldn't just be us asking these questions or Ross Coulthart and Bryce Sable, right? This should be happening in mainstream media. And I think that's what they're hoping will eventually happen. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, just ask, right? Somebody, anybody. Um, all right. So... Uh, in other hot news, uh, John Ramirez, I always love listening to John and, uh, he's, uh, he's a fount of information. Uh, so he was recently on, uh, the Opus, uh, show or Opus U YouTube channel. And I, you'll forgive me. I don't remember what the Opus acronym stands for. Um, but it is kind of a support organization for folks, I believe who are experiencers, um, 
And so John said a lot of really interesting things on that on that episode. Um, one which stands out in my mind anyway is that disclosure, the disclosure timeline is now uh, considered to be in terms of months, not years. Uh, that uh, that we are really uh, the gas. Uh, I guess we're hitting the gas here, and and they're going to be some big kind of bombshells coming uh, forth uh, fairly soon. And he also made a point to say it's not going to come from behind a government podium. It's going to come uh, at the public through some other kind of means. So I don't even know where to begin with that, but it sounds very exciting. Well, before we dive into it, who is John Ramirez and, and why should we take what he says seriously? That's true. Doesn't everybody know who John Ramirez is? So John Ramirez, thank you, good question. Good tea up there, is a, a retired uh, CIA officer uh, who... Who, uh, where did he work in? Like, uh, I think it was like ballistic uh, missile intelligence or, you know, analyzing, uh, you know, the, the kinds of things that you'd need people to take to pay attention to if, if you've got missiles flying across the atmosphere. Right. Yeah, exactly. He has quite a, uh, um, a background with a lot of insight from experience into these kinds of matters. He's also made it clear that he deliberately avoided having to sign an NDA a non-disclosure agreement around the UFO topic because he he's always been fascinated by this topic. And one thing that makes him unique is that he also uh, is an experiencer and he's been very open about that. So not only he's a, a former CIA analyst who has you know access to information that the average person does not, but he also is an experiencer who's had many of his own encounters and he's gone so far as to avoid uh, being directly associated with being read into certain programs that would involve a non-disclosure agreement because he wants to have full ability to talk about these things because it's a passion of his, as is often the case for experiencers, and to uh, share what he knows without, you know, disclosing classified information. So so the reason why we, um, you know, clarify who he is is to say that this is someone who, you know, supposedly knows that of which they speak. And he also went on to say, in this uh, in this show, that he knows these things, these these bold claims he's making based on, you know, associations he has with his previous employment. So he's not just hearing it on some podcast or something. He's basically saying he's hearing this from internal channels, right? That again, just to make this really clear, this is a bold statement. He's saying disclosure is happening in a matter of months now, not years. So it would already be compared to the long history, 75, 80 years of this topic, right? The modern UFO phenomenon it would already be a big thing to say, hey, I think big changes are coming in the next you know, few years. But he's going beyond that. He's saying that he's aware of machinations internally that are preparing for some sort of level of disclosure to the public within months. This is, a, this is kind of a groundbreaking statement to make and I think based on his background, I, I, I am, I'm, I'm thinking he would not make such a statement unless he had a fair degree of confidence that this was the case. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely uh, listen to what he says. Um, you know, I find him to be quite credible. Um, yeah, I'm hopeful. I, I hope that things transpire in that way. Uh, I hope that they, uh, you know, kind of catalyze the changes that, you know, we've many of the changes that we've talked about uh, with respect to the the phenomenon. Um, you know, he did mention as well, just to you know, iterate here, reiterate here that 
you know, even in saying months, we might mean 12 months or 18 months. Uh, and I think that that's an important point to make because, uh, you know, when you're talking about years, you're talking about, you know, in multiples. Uh, so 24 it, months would be the, the, when you kick into the, the years category, right? So anything less than that. Basically. Exactly correct. And, and I wanted to bring that up because he said that a lot of what the hearing, and he was pleased with the hearing, a lot of what it did is is it, it does further bring this topic into the, the acceptable uh, circle of conversation and that it was his uh, opinion and hope that it would become part of the political discourse uh, as we move into the 2024 election year. And he even made the statement that uh, it was, again, his opinion that the, the, the next president, whoever wins the 2024 election, would basically be the disclosure president. Uh, so I, I want to make sure we bring all that to, to the fore here, because uh, when I hear months, maybe my initial reaction is, hey, by the summer, you know, I'm going to have, uh, you know, spaceships that I can fly around. You know, but it may not be quite like that. Uh, although he did mention, I want to point this out, something he said that uh, he, he did give mention to uh, maybe there would be a future by, in which we could explore you know the galaxy in these kinds of craft i mean that is a incredible statement to make uh, i don't know if it's just a you know a, a wishful thinking uh you know, statement but uh i mean I, it's hard to even imagine but it's certainly cool it is and and this sort of adds to this growing conversation we're hearing around 2023 being a big year for this topic and again i know there are some people that have been bludgeoned into skepticism. I'm talking about enthusiasts who have been bludgeoned into skepticism about there being any kind of official disclosure because they've seen it time and time again uh, not happen, right? Not come to fruition. And they've seen you know, groups in the military be able to effectively shut down even inquiries into these kinds of things, right? Which again, Ross and, and Bryce got into that in their last episode. But it really seems like the, the times have changed and, and that it's not just that it's be, not just because people are putting feet to the fire and that Congress people are trying to hold military groups to account, but also that people internally that have been involved with the secret keeping allegedly are, are also the ones that are actually trying to make this happen. And very interestingly, he also added this extra bit of nuance that there is also a faction within internal circles that does not want this to come out and are determined to make sure that doesn't happen. But he even went as far as to say, therefore, the, those who do want this to come out that are internally involved have are, are really scheming together to make sure it happens, that it's, it basically can't be stopped this time. And that's what gives him the confidence to make the statement that it's a matter of months, not years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's certainly intriguing. Uh, he also mentioned uh, to keep eyes on uh, the sort of Twitter sphere uh, that there might be some notable uh, personalities in UFO Twitter uh, who are connected that might be making some statements uh, that, to pay attention to, in other words. Uh, so I think that's his way of saying, I can't say these things, but some people will be saying them. And when they do, you know, that's a hint that this is connected to that very effort that he is speaking of. Uh, so, you know, we certainly will see. We'll keep our eyes peeled out for that. Um you know, I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm hopeful again that this this transpires in a way that is transformative uh, for us as a people, uh, because as you and I have talked about many, many times, uh, if if this is disclosed and all it means is uh, we get to take this technology and you know 
do the stupid human things we've been doing with technology, uh, that's not a very good decision, right? So um, it needs to result in some real uh, societal uh, change, you know, in the way that we treat each other, the way that we uh, operate, uh, the way that, you know, we we structure our our entire cultures and societies, all that stuff has to change um, because it's, uh, you know, it's imperative. It's imperative. We cannot continue to operate and be the way that we are. Uh, We can't take, you know, historical human thinking in, into the cosmos. It's just not going to work. And I don't think that the cosmos will allow it either for that matter. Indeed. And, and I think the, the action we're seeing where so much of this phenomenon seems to be ramping up, right? That's, that's what's being reported, both in terms of civilians reporting these things and also military groups reporting them. Now, of course, people will point out that there's a lot more cell phones than there used to be. So Maybe it's just that there's more opportunity to capture these things. But actually, ironically, we spend so much time looking down at our screens when we're walking around that probably there's far fewer people spending their evenings looking up in the night sky than used to be the case, right? So I I think that it is significant. And one could argue, one could make the argument that perhaps the phenomenon or elements of it are ramping up because of their awareness that we are at a, a precipice that something needs to change. And so perhaps there has even been a change in calculus there, that that maybe this is the time where some sort of intervention or some sort of um, reckoning with something larger than the usual human affairs is considered necessary to really move the needle here. Because subtle changes, superficial alterations to, to climate policy and to you know energy policy is not going to do it here. We need something significant. We we are kind of, again, a log jam in terms of our technological progress leaping further and further ahead. We've talked about AI the last couple episodes. We don't need to get into it again, but, you know, bioweapons, nuclear weapons, that that's all heating up again, right? So all of that is leaping forward uh, with remarkable pace. And yet the, the center of gravity of the collective consciousness on the planet for humanity is not, not even, you could argue it's not even really moving forward. It's certainly not keeping up pace with the technological changes we're seeing. So perhaps that's indeed what what uh, is going on here, that it could be a calculus from some of the others that that something necessary uh, is, is needed here. And that perhaps even this is because, again, getting into this notion of experiencers having so much of a sense of a coming cataclysm or a sense of some sort of coming apocalypse, so many of the experiencers end up having visions being shown directly images of the earth in great distress and the sense that this is the future for humanity and that part of the intervention of these others being here is to possibly either prevent that or to help us uh, mitigate that when it happens. These are the kind of things going on. But I think when we think about this move in, in the public, that politically, academically, in the media a little bit, you know, not moving as fast as it should, but these moves of, of normalizing this topic perhaps are getting us closer to this day, but we do have this reckoning with something beyond us that maybe is exactly what we need to to finally fundamentally change the way we think about being a civilization. Yeah, well said. Um, well, in the last couple of minutes here, I, I wanted to spend just a brief amount of time on the reaction that experiencers might be having to this conversation, kind of where we are right now. And you did allude to the fact that John Ramirez uh, himself is an experiencer uh, and he's optimistic. 
but I'm I'm also aware that there are those experiencers who uh, you know kind of watch this transpire and just get incredibly frustrated that the pace of this conversation is so slow, uh, and that uh, you know it's because it's literally happening to to them. And if you've experienced something that is uh, you know personally impactful or traumatic. I mean, you can relive that trauma every single day of your life. And, and so it, it feels immediate. You know, it feels present right now. And so I'm aware that that is, uh, you know, certainly prescient to those folks. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sensitive to that. Um, you know, so I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts on that with the experiencer community? Do we think that, um, they're, that they're, you know, more hopeful now? Or is it just kind of more of the same frustration? I think it's a bit of both, right? Because on the one hand, I think anyone who's being objective acknowledges that we were having a level of public discourse that we've not had before, right? Think back to the 90s and you know, you'd have uh, John Mack appearing on the Oprah show, right? And that was a big revelation back then, right? But you were not having the kind of governmental conversation that we're having now. So that's a positive for sure, a net positive. But but again, the the, the elephant in the room for experiencers and the way I look at it, as well, is that, you know, we have many, many, many people that not only report encountering these craft, but the beings operating them, but there's a remarkable overlap in terms of the nature of those experiences. So that in itself, if you ask any intelligence analyst, they would say that is valid data. We need to be looking into that. Um, we, we should have a congressional committee that's interviewing experiencers, right? And, and collating the data and saying, look at these interesting overlaps. We could, again, one of the ways we could employ AI in a positive way is to, and I hope to do some of this in the future, is to look through all of this mountains of data, experience your data, right, around encounters and look for patterns. What can this tell us about this that we've missed up until now, right? Because this has been suppressed and not really engaged with the way it needs to be. So so this is a, a huge opportunity, I think. And I hope that at some point what happens is that that does become part of this public process, is actually talking to the people because that have had these experiences, because it's not just anecdotal, right? When you have mountains of data where you have this mirrored kind of kinds of encounters and the kinds of beings described, that is a data set. That is valid evidence used in any other kind of field that would look into these kinds of matters. So we need to get past that kind of logjam in terms of how we consider that. And that'll help us, I think, not only move the conversation forward as a collective, but perhaps even finally give us some insight into the, the the means, the methods, and perhaps even the agenda of some of these others. So I think, I hope that this will be part of the process in the future. Mm -hmm. The experiencers are so pivotal to this entire enterprise um, because they represent the humanity uh, uh -huh. that is entwined with, with the phenomenon. Right. And I think nothing will penetrate our malaise, uh, our stupor in a way, uh, better than the experiencers in our communities stepping forward and and then them having legitimacy from our institutions. Uh, that moment will change will change us irrevocably. Uh, and will be very, very powerful and I, I look forward to it. Uh, it will be very raw. Uh, but I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll be the catalyst for some lasting change in our, in our species. Um, well, it's been a great episode. Uh, I always love doing these kinds of, uh, 
you know, topical what's in the news uh, chats. It's a little bit different than what we usually do, but uh, I have a feeling we'll be doing some more of these in the future uh, as these kinds of things continue to develop, and I certainly look forward to them. I want to thank you. I say thank you to our listeners, uh, our little frames family. That's tough to say, uh, but thank you everyone for giving us a listen, a like, or a share. Uh, we really appreciate that, and uh, we look forward to speaking with you again very soon. May the quality of our questions, shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery, and may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.